Today's scripture readings, there are two, come from Paul's letters to the Corinthians and um, to the Ephesians. So we get to remain seated for our reading today. And I will begin with uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 27. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If we were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the hand to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor, and our less respectable members are treated with greater respect, whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, so that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children, tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ for whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly,
promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. The word of the Lord. It is our joy to welcome Dr. Amy Chase as our preacher today. Amy and her family have been active participants here in our congregation for a number of years. And Amy just got her PhD in Old Testament? In Old Testament from Drew. Uh, <laughs> a, great, a great achievement, a great accomplishment. And Amy has also, you may know, has done some work with churches in Africa about uh, gender, gender equity um, mm -hmm. in the church. Uh, so it is our great uh, joy and pleasure to have Amy Chase preach for us today. Thank you. Yes, so since I came to New Jersey really to study the Old Testament at Drew, and I finally graduated, <laughs> uh, it seems a little funny that I would pick a New Testament text to speak on. I mean, I have deep loyalty to the Old Testament. Uh, I feel it can be neglected among some Christian churches and certainly misunderstood. But when I was given the opportunity to speak, I decided to take advantage and, and set a self-imposed deadline for myself. The passages that I picked today are ones that I've had nudging in my own brain in response to the conflicts that are so prevalent in our world, in our uh, denomination, and things like that. So I've always had it in the back of my head that I need to take a closer look at that. I know it speaks to our tensions and divisions. So, so that's why I've picked this text. I should give what is sort of a disclaimer, which is that as I speak, I do not have any particular contemporary issue in mind or certainly no specific policy on any particular issue in mind. My aim is more modest. I intend simply to take a close look at this scripture passage and I have the expectation that it's the Holy Spirit that will speak to us perhaps very differently among us and convict us in any way the Spirit wants to. So the concept of the body of Christ, I think, is easy to grasp as a statement of unity. It's useful for reminding ourselves of an ideal or something that we should strive for. For example, we can extract from the metaphor the idea that we are all connected and that we really all should work together. Depicting a group with the metaphor of a body is not unique to the Apostle Paul. Many ancient writings use this metaphor to speak about the state as a body or to speak about a synagogue as a body. What Paul did though is that he personalized it and he expanded it by considering the character and the teachings of Christ and integrating those with this metaphor. So for in verse 13, in the one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, which in this context can refer to Gentiles generally, slaves or free, 
and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, I personally find it rather amusing that Paul would be the one to write such conciliatory words. Because Paul was not an easygoing guy. He could be very argumentative, quite controversial, outspoken, even rude, and stubborn. For example, he got into a public spat with Peter and says that he called Peter a hypocrite to his face in public when he felt that he was being wishy-washy about whether Jews could eat with non-Jews. And Paul could let his disagreements get personal. In one letter, he's writing about a dispute in Crete, and he says, one of the Cretans' own prophets has said, quote, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then Paul adds, this testimony is true. <laughs> so what is up with this? Is Paul a hypocrite? Is he a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do kind of guy? Well, what I think is that this passage, if we look at it closely, it's not really such a conciliatory kumbaya text, pretending that everything is sunshine and roses in the Christian church. Like so many of Paul's texts, it's admitting and trying to grapple with the deep divisions that existed. Now, I think today I often hear a lot of sympathy when it comes to the tensions between the Jews and the Gentiles. A lot of sympathy for the Gentiles. Uh, and I think that's because we know how the story unfolds over time and that the Christian church became more and more Gentile-focused and less and less Jewish-focused. We also know that Paul was strongly on the side of including the Gentiles. So we tend to have sympathetic feelings toward their perspective. I have a lot of sympathy for the Jewish believers and members of the early Christian church um, because the Jews understood themselves to be and actually were an occupied people, an oppressed people, a highly controlled and threatened people by Gentiles over the course of the previous several hundred years. They had lost their land. They lost their temple. They had lost their self-governance. And various empires had tried in many ways to destroy their culture and their existence as a people. So as a result of that, they had developed practices and beliefs that were meant to resist the assimilation that was being thrust upon them and help them to remain distinct and not lose their identity. Circumcision was one of these practices. It was the mark on their body that identified them as a special people and in a special relationship with the God who had promised to protect them and care for them and guide them in a covenant relationship. It's no accident that this mark of covenant was on the penis, the tool used for reproduction. 
It's like you cannot even create the next generation without using and invoking this mark of our eternal covenant. And when they would, they would engage the circumcision ceremony right at the birth, close to the birth, they bring the community together, they rehearse their history, their tradition, and they recommit themselves to passing it on to the next generation. So I can see how some of these Jewish believers in Jesus, even if they could set aside any animosity toward Gentiles who are so different, I could see how they would really not understand how can we be united with Gentiles if, if they don't convert and become Jews. Like, are our daughters going to marry uncircumcised men and have children who will, will they become circumcised? Will they not be circumcised? What will happen to our distinctiveness? And isn't that being disobedient to our holy scriptures and our prophets who warned us that it is really, really important to obey and be faithful? I can see how betrayed these Jewish followers would feel toward Paul, who was a Jew, and who I could see them saying, he should know better. He's being disloyal. He's betraying our ancestors. And I can see Paul feeling extremely defensive about that, because it probably hurts to have your own people say, you are betraying your people. You, you know... You know, so the level of woundedness and emotion uh, I can see being very, very high. Which is why I think the tensions and the cultural di differences back then are weighty enough to warrant our looking to them for direction concerning our own very emotional, very significant disputes today. So I think of this passage as having a beginning and an end that are similar in focus and then a surprising middle. The passage begins just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body though many are one, so it is with Christ. And it ends, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So in this framing, I see Paul trying to give equal weight to our existence as individuals and as members of a group. In this case, Christians, people who are followers of Jesus. The message is, it's not good for everyone to be the same. And in the ways that we are different, we are contributing something unique and vital. This is a good reminder and fairly non-controversial, I think. It's easy to apply to things like uh, talents, personality differences, spiritual gifts. We shouldn't be ignoring or looking down on people whose function is maybe less prominent, less flamboyant than somebody else. We shouldn't be judging others according to the standard of our gifting or our interests. Now, the middle section I think Paul is doing something different and taking a deeper dive into addressing conflict. I don't think he's talking anymore about simple differences of personality or talent. As I already mentioned, he begins this passage by referencing Jews and Greeks and slaves and free. 
So those are not individual differences. Those are like cultural differences, right? The difference of an entire social group that has different ideology, different traditions, different practices. So the middle section is the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that are dishonorable we clothe with greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, so that there may be no dissension within the body. This section really fascinates me. I think it's always fun when the Bible starts talking about dishonorable body parts. <laughs> now, as far as a description of our treatment of the body, it's pretty creative and I think it does ring true. Let's say that these dishonorable body parts, let's go with the genitals, just for example. That is the part of the body that if you have to disrobe for any reason, that's the one part you're going to keep clothed. So it's going to get a special treatment. That could be for reasons of comfort, sensitive area, we don't want it to be overexposed. And it also has to do with the function of that particular area of the body, right? When we're using the toilet, that's kind of an unpleasant thing, so we might as well spare others the sight of that area of the body. It's also, of course, the area of sexual activity. That's a private activity. We are very careful about who we allow to be exposed to that very special area of the body. So for reasons of the function of what happens there, we make special efforts to protect that area, we keep it clean and covered. So I think this works as a description of the body. But now, taking that and turning it into a metaphor for the church, how does this work? What is Paul saying about the church? Is he saying that some of us as groups or individuals, that we just are weaker, we are dishonorable, we are unpresentable? Who are these people? And what is he saying we should do about them? Is he saying that we should not only not exclude them, and not only tolerate them, but we should understand them to be special? This reminds me of a TEDx podcast that I heard a while ago by a scientist of the gut. She calls herself a gut doctor. And her name was Dr. Julia Enders. She says that most doctors even do not like to study the gut because it's kind of the more unpleasant area of the body. So as a result, it's been, until recently, largely unstudied and unrecognized what is actually happening in the digestive tract. 
And yet it's amazing once it is starting to be studied, it's like a whole world, it's like a whole universe right inside our gut. So one particularly interesting tidbit that she mentioned was what is happening when your tummy rumbles or when your stomach growls? I don't know, what, what do you think? Or what's the kind of common explanation that we give kids? What? That you're hungry, yeah. It's a sign that you're hungry. You haven't eaten, your stomach is protesting, it needs food. Right. Well, she says that what's actually happening is that part of your digest digestive tract is taking advantage of the break between meals to tidy up. And so, no, a strong muscular wave is happening all throughout the tract that is pushing leftover pieces of undigested matter so that during that break everything can be moved down and then it's ready for the next meal. So Dr. Ender said what we are embarrassed of is really a sign of something keeping our insides fine and tidy. So to get back to Paul I think that there are two quite brilliant things that he is doing here with his metaphor of the dishonorable body parts. One, I think he's just working with the prejudice, bias, negative judgments that in reality people have for one another. In his case, it was the Jews and the Greeks. He, I've already mentioned he talks about Jews and Greeks in his intro. And the terms that he uses here, weak and dishonorable, those are terms that he uses in other letters when he's addressing the disputes between the Jews and the, and the Greeks. So, for example, to the, the Greek believers... Um, the traditional Jews appeared to be weak because they had all these rules, you know, that they weren't willing to give up on. In Romans, Paul says, one person's faith allows him to eat anything, but another, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. And to the Jews, the Greeks appeared to be kind of scandalous, right? Dishonorable, unpresentable, because they don't follow the traditions. They're not part of the covenant received so many years ago. They are lacking the standards and the status of the Jewish people according to the Jews. So on one level, I think Paul doesn't even bother trying to talk them out of their judgments. He's, he's just working with it to say, hey, you know, all right, but think about your own body. I mean, you have parts of your body you're not fond of, but... You give them special attention. You treat them extra well. So take a tip from your own body. And in doing this, Paul is applying the teachings of Jesus to this current situation. We know Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, if your enemy forces you to walk one mile, walk with him too. Love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you, Paul's advice is consistent with this posture of Jesus. But on another level, I think that Paul is not just resigning himself to and cooperating with the hostilities and prejudices that exist. 
He's trying to push them past it by saying with his first articulation of the principle, they are indispensable. In, a, in the book of Romans, which is all back and forth, Jews and Greeks, Paul is very intent on explaining how the Gentiles and the Jews are both part of this new covenant. But he writes to the Gentiles that they should not feel superior to these traditional Jews. Do not consider yourself to be superior. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but it's the root, meaning the Jews, that supports you. So they too are indispensable. It's not a matter of just kicking out the old guard and then letting in the new. So I wonder, can we do this? Can we flip our views of the people in our communities that we look down on? Consider weak, dishonorable, embarrassing, unpresentable, and not only treat them with special honor because Jesus said to, and that's what you gotta do, but actually extend ourselves to understand that they have a special function. Even in the act of doing what they're doing that we so dislike. Like the, an armpit, which gets sweaty and stinky. My nose doesn't like it, but if it wasn't doing its thing, it would not work out well for the body. What would this involve or require for us to shift our thinking? I'm reminded of Dr. Elders, the gut doctor, who said that her first step in coming to appreciate the gut was to resist drawing back in horror or rejection and instead spend time with it. Examine it closely. And by taking a really close look at it, she came to appreciate things she would never have known. Now, as I mentioned, Paul did not always react ideally in his conflicts. But I think that if we consider the main of what he wrote, we have to see that he did do this. He did spend time in deep contemplation and trying to understand the perspective of these resistors, the Jewish resistors. I believe this is true because in Romans, when he's trying to reason with the Jews and explain how the Gentiles can come in, he doesn't just say, well, that was then and now there's a new thing and it's better. And he doesn't just say, you know, listen to me. Instead, what he does is he quotes their own prophets. So by doing that, he appeals to what was their concern. I mean, their concern was, we cannot abandon our history. We, we cannot be unfaithful to Yahweh. And so what he does is he says, well, do you remember the prophet Joel? I mean, Joel himself said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So by appealing to their own history, he was able to hopefully work with their values and their concerns to have communication. Now, if we, if we don't do this, if we don't spend time with the people we consider 
beyond the pale, then um, we, we have a number of disadvantages. Um, it's so much easier to misunderstand what their perspective actually is. It's easy to um, assign nefarious motives to them when we haven't heard from them directly. It's easy to distort what they're thinking and what they say. In the second uh, passage that Brian read, it, it has in the middle this phrase, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body. So I think speaking the truth in love indicates that conversation is necessary in order to grow in unity where there is difference. Now, what I'm talking about is very, very hard to do. It has never been easy and that has not changed. I want to acknowledge that difficulty. I hope, though, that by thinking about Dr. Elder's experience, it can help motivate us. Because in her experience, she discovered such great rewards from doing that difficult work. In the case of the gut, by studying it, they have learned about so many hormones that exist in the gut, so many immune cells that work to keep the body healthy. There's a highly sophisticated nervous system in the gut that is all about sending information to the brain and so that the brain can know what's going on in parts of the body. The information that the gut sends to the brain has been shown to affect areas of morality and mood, things that were not recognized before in terms of the function of the gut. Even the bacteria of the gut, it has trillions of bacteria. She says 95% are not harmful. Some of the bacteria in the gut actually are helpful. And then she said even the so-called bad bacteria in the gut, what studies have shown is that it is not good for the body to get rid of all the bad bacteria. And really, the healthiest person will keep a little bit of bad bacteria around just so that the body can recognize and distinguish between bad and good bacteria. So the way that she put it is, actually, what's bad is good. And I think that if we commit ourselves to trusting the wisdom of Paul on this point, we will reap a comparable reward in our body. So I want to conclude with a body illusion of my own, which is to urge that we stretch ourselves. Get it? Stretch ourselves. Now, for me, when I think about the people in my life, there's those that are easy to love, those I can tolerate, and everybody else. <laughs> so for me, stretching would look like asking, who are the people that I consider weak, dishonorable, unpresentable, and what are the ways that I can 
make greater efforts in treating them as if they are indispensable, deserving of special honor and regard. In the Ephesians treatment, Paul emphasizes that Christ is the head of the church. So I think another way of stretching would be for whatever part of the body I am to, in prayer, present these other parts of the body to Christ the head. Asking not that they become more like me in their thinking and their behavior, but that they simply fulfill their function as Christ wills, whatever it may be. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work.